Such dreams I had for my shop. With my mind full of memories of the brilliant Naples shops, I wanted mine to be like them. I wanted assistants to work with me, even though I had no work for them to do, because I wanted to show Bonito that I was not simply another shoemaker making farmer's shoes, but a shoemaker of fashion, distinction, and style. My shoes would be different. So I hunted around Naples with my slender finances, buying pretty leathers that might tempt the Signore of Bonito, as well as my first lasts and tools and all the things I should need to make the shoes. It was like a fairy story, my dreaming. And of course, it was a fairy story. Instead of playing the comedies with the other boys of my own age, I was playing at work. Of course, I could not establish a shop like those in Naples. There was no money. All I could do was take over a small space in our house. It was not even a room between a door which opened onto the main street of the village and led to the kitchen. There was not even a window. In this hall space, I set up my bench and two chairs, spread out my last, the tools, and the pieces of my fancy leather, and engaged two assistants. One was a boy of 18 who had been working for another shoemaker in Bonito, and the other was a boy of seven or eight who was to straighten the nails. I timed the opening of my shop carefully. As our house looked onto the small church, opposite it occurred to me that if I opened on a Sunday, just as the worshippers were leaving Mass, they would all see me gather, and then they would gather around to find out what was going on. On the Sunday morning after my talk with my uncle, everything was ready. I waited impatiently for the hour when the church service would finish and all the people would come out. At last it was time. I sat at the bench with the elder boy in the other chair. The young one could not stand in his proper place. He would have obscured the view of me from the street, so I put him at the back of the room. Then I opened the door, and in a few minutes the people came strolling slowly out of church, talking and laughing, the farmers and their wives and children, the doctor, the pharmacist, the teacher, and their wives and children, and they all stopped and stared to see the small son of Maria Antonia sitting in the doorway with his bench and his colored leathers and his tools and his two assistants. They came up to my door in a crowd, laughing and joking, some curious and some skeptical. What? Do you think you can make shoes, they said? But you are so tiny, you are only a young boy, and some of them made fun of the older boy, saying, What has happened to you? Are you going to play with the children now? Extraordinary reaction was that of Signora Belmonte, the pharmacist's wife. She should have known me, as I say. I had made shoes for her, but since my return from Naples, she had, I suppose, not noticed me. Now she burst into tears to see me sitting there, and she came to me and hugged me and kissed me and said, Oh, my boy, my boy, you are my son, you are my son. It sounded all strange to me. I, I knew I had a mother, and she wasn't the pharmacist's wife, but I said nothing. I didn't know what to say. After a few moments, Signora Belmonte put her hands in her pockets and gave me everything she could find some money, a piece of chocolate biscuit, and a lump of cheese she had bought at the market. 
and I discovered that she had lost her own son years before, and now she thought she saw his reincarnation in me. She invited me to go to their farm that afternoon so she could show me to all of her friends and relatives. I am afraid I did not go. That afternoon, I shed the mantle of the big businessman with a shop of his own and went playing with the other boys. I remember we clambered all over the roof of a stable playing hide-and-seek and must have broken at least ten tiles. Despite local skepticism, my shop was a success. A few friends and relatives gave me my first orders, no doubt in the hope that I would make the best possible shoes out of the finest materials and charge them less than any other shoemaker in the village. But after I had made my first pair, the word spread around Bonito that Salvatore Ferragamo, the shoemaker who had been to Naples to learn to make high-grade shoes, was making shoes different from anyone else in the district. One by one, the signore were tempted to come and see if I could make their shoes. Soon, they discovered that they could buy no better shoes in Naples or Bari or Foggia, and because they were accustomed to paying the fares to one or other of the cities, they were sometimes, but not always, willing to pay me a little, perhaps half a lira more than they would have paid for similar shoes in the cities. My first task in every transaction with my customers was to strike a price. They were not in the least concerned with the design. They only wanted something different, and it was my job to give it to them. They would order one or two pairs, and I would then quote my price. I would try and get 14 liras, but I did not always succeed. They would try to beat me down, and the haggling would start, and often I had to take 11 liras or 10 or even as little as 8 liras to get the custom. There was no question of economics in the business, except of the most rudimentary type. I knew what my leather cost, and every cent I could get for my shoes above the price of the leather was my profit. I detested this initial bargaining. I knew what my work was worth, and I fought hard to establish its value, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. I also detested the second problem of the business, collecting the money when the shoes were made. It was easy with the poorer people. They, who could afford perhaps only one pair of shoes a year, paid cash on delivery, and sometimes they would pay even before the shoes were made. The signore, on the other hand, those who had the money to pay, were accustomed to settling their bills once a year in August when the crops were harvested and sold. It sometimes happened that I would make shoes for a signora early in September, and by the time August came around, there would, of course, be something wrong with the shoes, and then she would explain indignantly that my shoes were no good. Look at the soles, or look at the heels. They need repairing, and she would expect me to repair them without extra payment. Of the many minor tussles I fought with people like this, I remember well one signora who brought me her own leather to make up. She stood over me as I cut the uppers, watching suspiciously every useless sliver of leather that dropped from the knife before she consented to go away and leave me to my task. The shoes were finished and delivered in the months past. One day I asked her for the money. She looked at me in horror and said, but I expect you to pay me for the leather I left with you and you did not use in the shoes. 
I also remember the first pair of sandals I ever made. One of the signore had, as usual, given me freedom to choose my own design, and I decided that now was the time, and she was the customer for whom I could try to make a dream come true. Today, the making of a pair of sandals is not difficult, but in those days, much more work went into them than into an ordinary pair of shoes because the shaping of toes and heels took a considerable time. When the sandals were finished, I was very proud of them. They had practically no toes or heels, and when the signora saw them, she was delighted. She said over and over again how beautiful they were, how unusual, how wonderful, and what a marvelous shoemaker I was to make her such a charming footwear. But when it came to settling the bill, she said indignantly, surely I get a reduction on the price we agreed. You are not going to charge me for the leather you did not use in the toes and heels. Despite these little difficulties, my business expanded. Soon, remarkably soon, I was making shoes for all the signore in Bonito. And not long after that, the word spread through surrounding villages and small towns that in Bonito, there was a shoemaker from Naples who was making high-grade, fashionable shoes as good as any of the cities. My two assistants increased to six. I must confess that I did not always have to work for them, but they made the shop look good. They would come from other shoemakers pleading to be allowed to work for me, and as I was willing to pay them a little more than they were already getting, they came. I was the youngest of them, except for the boy who straightened the nails. My output this time varied, of course, with demand. Handmade shoes take a long time, and working hard, it might be possible to make five pairs between dawn and dusk, but that was not a pace that could be maintained every day. If I made between 20 and 25 pairs a week, I considered that I had done exceptionally well. Nevertheless, I was happy. I was making money, not a fortune, but sufficient for my needs, plus a little extra for which I could use first to repay my uncle and then to put aside for the future. I felt that I was making good shoes, different shoes, beautiful shoes within the limits of the materials I could use and the prices I could charge. Within two years, I had settled comfortably into a world of my own. It did not matter to me at this stage that it was a small world beyond which I could not expand. I was happy. Everybody admired me. I worked hard. I had all the customers I needed. And like all boys, I began to look forward to the day when I would marry one of the girls of the village and settle down and have a family. The idea of leaving home again was not even in my thoughts, and although I still had not mastered the problem of taking correct measurements, I had given up all thoughts of attempting to learn anything more than I already knew about the art of shoemaking. It was 1912, and I was 14 years of age, an established man of business with my six assistants, when my elder brother, Alfonso, came home from the United States to pay a visit to my mother. In America, as it happened, he was working in a shoe factory with the Queen Quality Shoe Company in Boston, Massachusetts. He was keenly interested in my work, and at first he had nothing but admiration for me. He would come and sit outside the house while I made the shoes and watch the way I worked. He was impressed by the quality of my clients and proud of the standard of work I was turning out. But this state of mind did not last long. 
he soon discovered the price I obtained for a pair of shoes, and how many shoes it was possible for my assistance in me to make in the course of a week or a month, and from that moment onward, he started to play a similar role to that adopted by the teacher, Don Raffaele, and the pharmacist, Don Luigi, in the time when I was apprenticed to Luigi Festa. He began to say, why do you do this? Why do you waste your time working here in Bonito? Here you make a pair of shoes and get so little for them in America. A pair of custom-made shoes would pay you much more if you cared to work that way. Though, as a matter of fact, in America, nobody works by hand anymore. He told me about this job in the factory in Boston. There, everything is done by machine, he said. There isn't a shoemaker in the place, but we make fine shoes by the thousands of pairs. In the time you take one pair of shoes, we turn out thousands. Then he would return to his main theme. Why don't you leave this country village? Bonito is no good for you. Leave it as your brothers and I have left it. Go to America. Look, Salvatore, he added, getting worked up over the idea. I'll take you. I'll pay your fare and see you get a job the day after you land in America. It won't be hard for you as it was hard for us. Before I got this good job, I had to go through hell. I worked on the railroad as a water boy and then with a pick and shovel. I worked at everything that would earn me a dollar until I got this job. Now I make a lot of money. As you know, I send money home and still I'm able to put aside something for myself. So why don't you come over? For a long time, I took no notice. I was not interested. I was happy. Why should I leave my happiness and go seek money elsewhere? But every day he came and sat down, and he would measure my endeavors by the standards of his factory. In America, he would say, watching me at work, we can do that in a jiffy. After I had completed a pair of soles, which would perhaps take half an hour, Alfonso would say, Half an hour, half an hour it took you to shape those soles. In America, a fraction of a second. The building of high heels, leather upon leather, layer after layer, would take more than two hours. Alfonso would say, in a machine you put all the pieces together, and bingo, in one minute you've got a heel. Then the machine goes on and trims the edge of the heel, and it's ready to be attached to a few nails, and it is all finished. Or... Perhaps I would be stitching a pair of shoes. It takes a long time, especially with sports shoes in which the stitches have to be extremely small. Working precisely by hand is an awkward job, and to accomplish it in an hour and a quarter would make you sweat. Alfonso would watch in a tedious business and say, In the machine, poof, nothing. In one minute we would do the whole job. Then he would go on and describe the whole function of the machine. This talk went on day after day until I could stand it no longer. I turned to him and at last said, no, Alfonso, I'm happy here. I'm not interested in American machine-made shoes. I want to make handmade shoes, and that's what I'm going to do. After that, he left me alone, just shaking his head now and then over the stubbornness of a small boy who did not know where his best prospects lay. Eventually, his holiday came to an end, and he returned to America alone. But when he was back in the States, he took up his theme once more, writing to me to ask when I would go over, promising to pay my fare and look after me if only I would join him and my other brothers. The weeks passed, his letters continued to arrive, and the words he had spoken lodged firmly in my mind. 
However hard I tried to get them out, and gradually a seed began to burgeon. There came the days when I would sit over my shoes, staring down the sunlit road of Bonito, over the hills and far away, thinking of the magnificent machines that accomplished in minutes the work it took me hours to finish. It also dawned on me that no matter how long I lived and however hard I and my assistants worked, there was a limit to the amount of money I could earn and the number of shoes I could make. My happiness, my contentment began to ebb. I might say in Bonito all my life and at the end of it, what would I have accomplished? No more than I had already accomplished, except that the quantity would be multiplied. I could never expect much more than a modest income, and when I got married, as I would one day, and the family began to come along, there would be all the mouths to feed and still no chance of increasing my earnings, except by working myself harder and harder. But in America, in the fabulous country, they had performed miracles. If I went there, I could learn their tricks and perhaps improve on them, and then I began to dream as extravagantly as I had dreamed two years before when I had first opened my shop. In Italy, I thought, no one is making machine-made shoes. Suppose I went to America and found out how it was done and worked there long enough to accumulate some capital. Then I could come back to my native land and put up a nice big plant, perhaps in Naples, and make shoes for everyone instead of shoes for a few. At last... I made up my mind. I would go to America, and among the machines, I would find my fortune.